you still need to make sure that uh, you know the trees are trimmed and that uh, facilities are rated correctly and that you know contingency plans are put in place. All that good, what I call good spinach associated with operating the grid, as important today as it's ever been. But now we have to worry about things like uh, generator preparedness for extreme weather conditions, particularly cold weather. Yep. Uh, we need to worry about how inverter-based resources, wind and solar, are integrating onto the grid. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 090, number 90 of the Flux Capacitor. My guest on today's pod is Jim Robb, the president and CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, known as NERC. Jim joined me for a conversation about the role NERC plays in ensuring reliability of the North American electricity system the current state of reliability, the latest long-term assessment, what the drivers are of a future electricity demand growth, and the evolving threat environment for the grid. We also talk about collaboration to secure the grid and Jim's experience as an electric vehicle owner. We close the conversation with a recommendation for the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Jim Robb, recorded in early January 2024 on Zoom. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Well, Francis, I'm delighted to uh, be joining you again. The last time you and I recorded a podcast, you were the third. This is episode 90. You were episode... You're ep- you were episode number three, Jim, and we recorded it, um, uh, I guess, uh, almost four years ago in February 2019. That uh, that sounds right. I remember you. It was at our uh, board meeting in, yeah. uh, I think, in Los Angeles, and you had all of your equipment with you, and uh, it was all very professional. So Yeah, it was uh, back in the days before we had, had Zoom, uh, and right. And- Zoom does all of the recording and, and filtering, which is, which is awesome. But listen, Jim, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to to connect because the world has changed in the in the last four years, uh, and uh, you know the state of reliability has certainly changed. But I thought maybe we could start with uh, maybe just a description for the listener who may not be as familiar with NERC. Um, so uh, how, what's the, uh, you know, that elevator pitch trying to explain to somebody, what exactly is it that NERC is and what do they do? That's a great question. So we are a, uh, a nonprofit agency uh, set up as a result of the uh, 2003 Northeast blackout. Yeah. Uh, and our mission is to uh, set and enforce compliance with mandatory reliability standards mm-hmm. in the uh, United States through congressional authority and uh, recognizing, as uh, uh, we all know, that uh, electricity doesn't know boundaries or mm-hmm. borders uh, and, and the, the critical relationship between the U.S. and the Canadian provinces that border the United States, uh, we operate in Canada under memorandums of understanding, one with right. the federal government and then with each province. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the mission is similar, uh, right? To make sure that we have the right performance, uh, operations, planning, and security standards in place to protect the bulk power system uh, across North America. Of course, in Canada, uh, each provincial authority has uh, can, can create its own flavor of those standards that uh, are appropriate in their local uh, or provincial context. Right. But um, but we operate across the uh, across the continent. And uh, in addition to doing the work on standards, we also study the grid. We study events. Uh, we do reliability assessments of the of the grid, not so much forecast, but risk assessments. Mm -hmm. uh, looking out into the upcoming seasons, uh, we do two seasonal assessments, and then uh, every year we do a ten year uh, long term reliability assessment. Right. Yeah, and, and I want to maybe chat a little bit about uh, uh, some of those assessments because they uh, certainly the more recent ones have some very interesting um, uh, interesting uh, conclusions that they come to. But uh, before that, so uh, you mentioned it was the 2003 power outage. It led to the Energy Policy Act of 2005 that established the uh, ERO, the Electric Reliability Organization. Uh, um, so you mentioned how it works in uh, both Canada and the United States. I guess the question is, does it work? Is it this is does the construct that was put put in place? Uh, I don't know more than fifteen years ago. Is it actually is it actually working as a North American body? I think the answer to that is yes. Right mm -hmm. when we look back at the performance of the grid, and we do an annual uh, look back uh, assessment of uh, performance. We see steady improvement in all of those things that we set out to accomplish in 2005, right? right. We see uh, declining misoperations rates. We see uh, fewer events where uh, transmission systems aren't performing the way they're supposed to and so on and so forth. So I think the, the fundamental performance of the grid itself continues to improve uh, year over year. And we'll take some credit for that, but obviously the credit goes to the men and women who actually design and operate the grid. I think what is also true is that the risks that are facing the grid today are very different yeah. than the ones that we set out to uh, to address in 2005. And uh, that's you know driven by the changing climate conditions the grid has to perform uh, underneath, mm -hmm. uh, and as well as the change in the resource base that uh, that is occurring. and uh, and that's creating new stresses, new challenges that uh, we're having to understand uh, kind of in real time right. as uh, as we work through the you know codification of those into performance standards for the mm -hmm. grid you know and what paradoxically though what we also find is that we still need to make pay attention to all the other stuff we still need to make sure that uh, you know the trees are trimmed and that uh, facilities are rated correctly and that you know contingency plans are put in place all that good what I call good spinach associated with operating the grid as important today as it's ever been but now we have to worry about things like uh, generator preparedness for extreme weather conditions particularly cold weather yeah uh, we need to worry about how inverter based resources wind and solar are integrating onto the grid uh, as we continue to lose that traditional generation that you know was based on making electricity the old-fashioned way, you know, by yeah. making things spin. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so we got our work cut out for us. Um, but, uh, but in general, I think the model has worked uh, exceptionally well.
Yeah, you you'd mentioned that. I mean, one of the one of the uh, interesting things that occurred uh, as a result of uh, the establishment of uh, NERC as the Electricity Reliability Organization is that the standards became mandatory. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I I, I don't think that the listener has an appreciation for for what that actually means. Um, so when when somebody uh, uh, breaches um, one of the standards that's that's put in place, what do they get? They get like a a, a, a very harshly worded letter, uh, or are there <laughs> or are there indeed or are there indeed real sanctions here? It, 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 well, it depends on the uh, the severity of the uh, violation and the risk that was created. Um, we, we have moved to where the vast, vast, well, a couple things. One, first of all, the vast majority of violations of these standards are discovered by the entities themselves. Okay. And, and they self-report, which is terrific, right? That, that tells us that entities have invested in building control systems to, uh, you know, understand when they're in violation of these, uh, reliability standards. Um, when we uh, when we process them, we do an assessment as to what risk was created, mm -hmm. and you know the vast majority majority of these are very low risk violations, and our approach to those tend to be fix it, tell us you fixed it, and you know monitor that it's been fixed. Yeah. Um, we call that find, fix, and track. Um, some we just describe as compliance exceptions. That, yeah, you violated this, but it, it, it wasn't consequential and it wasn't very high risk. Just don't do it again, right? Yep. Uh, but yep. noted and it's in your file. Um, and then there are those that, you know, really did pose risk to the grid. Uh, you know, this has been particularly true with, with some of the violations around cyber uh, and cyber-related standards but also vegetation management uh, and facility ratings. And for those, we do have an authority to uh, levy penalties. Hmm. Uh, in the U.S., we do that directly. In, uh, in can and, and they go to the FERC to be, uh, to be approved. Right. Um, so there's a couple sets of layers of uh, eyes on those. Uh, in Canada, the, the enforcement regime is, uh, varies by province mm -hmm. and uh, is, uh, is acted upon by provincial authorities, since we don't have that authority in, uh, in Canada. So it, our services in Canada, we, we will do the compliance monitoring, we'll do the audits, the performance assessments, the risk analyses. Uh, in some cases, we may make a recommendation to the uh, appropriate provincial authority, but it's really up to them to figure out what the right enforcement action is. Right, right. So what's the, uh, you know, the, the, the most significant sanction that's been levied? Gosh, we have had several, what we would call broad scale SIP program fall downs, if you yeah. will. Yeah. Uh, and those have attracted penalties on the order of $15 million a year. Okay, so we're not um, talking about just a, a a a harshly worded letter. That that those are yeah, real. No, 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 no. This 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 this, this is real money. Although yeah. those are also to very very large entities. Uh, we we take entity size and ability to pay yeah. into consideration, uh, and that and and that also kind of also tends to correlate with the risk that was created, right? right. So if you're a big multi-state utility and and you have real issues uh you know whether they're sip or O&P issues you're creating a lot of risk for the grid right if you're a tiny little municipality you know tucked away somewhere probably not so much right so the model kind of goes around that way but um 
like I said, we, we, we reserve financial penalties for those things which are really create meaningful and uh, significant risk to the grid. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, I just, I, I, you know, as I said, for the, for the listener, I wanted to, yeah. to clarify. So yeah, these, these really do have bite. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's not our goal that sometimes, you know, people think our, we, we get our jollies by you know, waking up and writing traffic tickets to, <laughs> uh, uh, to utilities. We would just as soon never have to have any sort of an enforcement, uh, action. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but unfortunately in the same way you write, we do need to have uh, highway patrolmen and so on and so forth to, uh, issue citations. That's kind of our role. Yeah. Um, and uh, our penalties, the other thing that's important to note is our penalties aren't based on uh, on harm, right? It's really, they're meant to be deterrents, yeah. right? So in the same way, if you think about a moving violation in your vehicle, right, the, the faster you're going, you know, the more risk you're creating for everyone around you, the greater the penalty associated with that. We have kind of the same construct in our penalty mindset. Gotcha. One of the things that that I didn't ask you when you were on the podcast the first time, but I've I've been asking people who've uh, come on the podcast subsequent, is uh, I'm interested about people's journey, um, and, and so I, I'd be interested in, in in what your journey was. Uh, and I always make the joke when you were a kid in the playground, I don't think you always dreamed of of running a, the electrical liability organization for North America. So what was what was your journey to this role? From the cradle, this was what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I think I think that's a line from the uh, Churchill movie, Darkest Hour. Um, no, you know, I uh, I'm a big believer in serendipity, and one of the things that I learned early in my professional career, I started out working as a uh, I was I was an engineer for a while, uh, working for Chevron, but uh, I kind of view my professional career starting when I joined McKinsey and Company in uh, 1988. Yep. And one of the things I learned there was, uh, you know, the grass is never greener uh, on the other side. Uh, take advantage of what opportunities present themselves to you and follow your nose. And uh, and it was really sort of a series of happenstance issues that got me connected into electric power. And it was primarily because I was getting married and I was tired of traveling. And I told my told the office manager at McKinsey, I said, you got to find me something in town. And it turned out that there was a project starting up for the local utility. <laughs> and uh, that project turned into another project and then another project and then another project. And then I went and did some other stuff and I came back in another project. Uh, and uh, before I knew it, I had invested the majority of my McKinsey career working in the Western energy sector, oh. uh, mostly electricity based. Mm -hmm. uh, when I left McKinsey, I went to work for an energy merchant, uh, did after that, I, uh, went and worked for a utility proper up in, uh, New England. And each of these moves makes sense in hindsight. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I never could have plotted the course. Right. So I was, I always tell my kids and, uh, I had a chance to visit with some engineering students at Purdue, uh, a few years back as part of one of their kind of professional development programs. And I said, you know, take advantage of opportunities and uh, don't get overly wound up about any individual experience because more likely than not, they're going to add up to something great. Hmm. And, uh, and you can't, I don't think you can pre-plan these things. I think right. you just take advantage of what presents itself and make the most of it. And that's yeah. what I've done. Yeah. And I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate to have 
really neat things come my way. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So Jim, let's uh, let's let's shift gears. Uh, and we kind of mentioned this earlier. Uh, the state of reliability, um, and uh, you know your your uh, uh, your regular uh, reliability, uh, long term reliability assessments, and and your seasonal assessments. Um, I know when we were chatting last time, uh, we were chatting I guess a couple of months after the 2018 long term reliability assessment came out. Now the yep. 2023 one came out last month. Um, I've noticed the number of things different. Um, the presentation, frankly, I, I I like the new report. I like the way you've got a map in there that that has different colors. Um, uh, I, I like that. Um, I, I'm not so uh, jazzed that there's red on the map and yellow on the map because uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. that reliability assessment has shifted, right? And 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 we're seeing um, some more significant concerns. So maybe talk a little bit about kind of the state of reliability now and, and how it's shifted. Sure. No, that's a great topic. I've, and I, I appreciate your comments on the accessibility of the report. Yeah. It, it has definitely, our, our communications team has done a great job working with our technical folks to yeah. migrate it from a very dense technical uh, yeah. compendium yeah. Of, of facts and data into something that's now accessible to the great unwashed mm -hmm. uh, like you and me. Um, but it, it, it's, it actually is a, an interesting paradox that uh, I, I, I stand up in front of people and say reliability as we define it and was defined for us when we were, uh, when we were chartered has never been better right. uh, in terms of the performance of the grid. At the same time, the risk and the risk profile of the mm. se sector is increasing very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. and, and what's interesting, if you go back to that 2018 assessment or 2019, when we first started doing the maps, yep. you know, we had, we use colors to indicate uh, different levels of risk. Uh, we have three buckets, you know, normal, elevated and high. Yep. And I think if you went back to that 2018, 2019, you would probably see the California, Mexico planning area as, yep. as having risk. And I think every year we have prepared that report, we see more areas at elevated risk. And over the last couple of years, we've had the MISO area uh, at high risk. And uh, some definitional terms would help be helpful here. High risk is that your risk of energy shortfalls during normal conditions. And uh, elevated risk is that you would be at, at reasonable risk of uh, energy shortfalls under extreme conditions. And it's being driven by a number of things. Uh, the most pronounced is the uh, declining reserve margin. Right. And I'll talk a little bit later on of why I don't like reserve margin, but it is sort of a metric that uh, that that we have to use. Um, and that's being driven by the retirement of uh, traditional generating resources or other things that are preventing them from being available. Uh, for instance, in uh, Canada, in Ontario, um, we frequently are citing Ontario as an elevated risk, and that's largely due to some of the nuclear refurbishment work that's been going on there that's multi-year, right. uh, res restricting that capacity from being able to, uh, to operate. Uh, we have an issue in Saskatchewan this winter uh, with uh, 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 an imbalance in the, uh, in, in the demand outlook and, uh, and, and supply basis. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've, we've seen this decline in the, in the, in, in the amount of capacity available to serve load. Right. At the same, at the same time, 
uh, and this in in this our most recent LTRA long term reliability assessment that uh, we published last December, we're seeing a significant uptick in demand mm. and demand growth. And that's being driven by three or four things. One, uh, data centers um, are becoming a very, very uh, fast growing load. A uh, big chunk of that is because of the rise of things like ChatGPT. Hmm. Um, I don't know if this number is precisely correct, but uh, I've been told that a ChatGPT query uh, takes 10 times the energy and all the other resources that go along with that as a simple Google search. Wow. So as we add more technology into our lives and particularly artificial intelligence, crypto mining is another large driver, um, right? We're just seeing load growth from that. Second is we've had a big push, um, particularly in the United States over the last, uh, last several years to repatriate manufacturing that moved offshore um, during the 90s and the 2000s. <laughs> Part of that's for supply chain uh, security concerns and so on and so forth. So we're getting some old fashioned, you know, industrial demand growth. Right. And then a couple things that kind of fall in the policy arena. Uh, the rise of electric transportation. You and I both own electric vehicles and we know yep. what great cars they are, yep. um, but they consume a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, the if you have a level two charger in your garage, it's probably twice the load of your house uh, when it operates. And uh, and so so and the, just the amount of kilowatt hours that are yeah. consumed by transportation is yeah. really poised to take off. Uh, in the U.S., and I know the U.S. statistics better than I know Canada, but in the U.S., I think now one in 10 car sales are uh, electric uh, <laughs> battery vehicles. And that's usually the point where with most other technologies, we've moved from, you know, the innovators, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, trying out the new technology to mass adoption. Yeah. And uh, assuming we keep charging infrastructure developing the way uh, we aspire to, transportation is going to become a big driver of demand um, and, and create some interesting challenges for the grid as well. And then the, the fourth area is space heating uh, with uh, you know, people uh, and policymakers in a number of jurisdictions uh, putting bans on natural gas uh, for new construction. We're just seeing more electricity coming into the uh, system for space heating, uh, cooking, uh, water heating, all of those things that many places relied on the natural gas for becoming electrified. And, uh, and, and that's profound. If you think about the numbers, and again, I'll quote U.S. numbers because I'm a bit more facile with them. In, in the U.S. and in most of the developed world, electricity is about 20% of end-use energy consumption, yep. Yep. With, the re with the rest being petroleum uh, products directly. Um, if we electrified everything, which I don't think anybody really expects us to do, but in theory, we could see a quintupling <laughs> of the size of the electric grid to, uh, to accommodate that. Um, but even, uh, even short of that, most people who have studied this suggest that over the next 20 to 30 years, if we're going to meet our goals for, a decarbonized, largely decarbonized economy by 2050, yep. uh, net zero that, you know, we'll see the electric sector grow 200, 300% yeah. over what it is today. Right. And that, uh, 
that's pretty astounding for a grid that hasn't really grown very much for the last 20 to 30 years <laughs> because of all of our investments in energy efficiency and appliance turnover and the like. <laughs> so uh, we've got a lot of challenge ahead of us to, uh, to meet that. And that's what's being reflected in our LTRA, which is where we started this conversation. Yeah, yeah. But also, um, you know, the, the threat uh, environment, the threat landscape, you mentioned this earlier, has changed as well from back in, in 2005. Uh, we're looking at a, a very different um, threat environment today, right? I mean, that's something that's shifted pretty significantly. Absolutely. Uh, the, the way I described this at a recent uh, recent meeting is it's, we have a toxic soup of uh, threats uh, facing the grid. You know, none of which were as acute in 2005 as they are today by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It, it, you know, on, on the cybersecurity side, the statistic I like to, uh, to cite is that the National Institute of Standards uh, NIST uh, in the U.S. will cite something like 50 to 60 vulnerabilities, software vulnerabilities discovered a day. Right. And uh, yeah. if you think about that, every one of those vulnerabilities needs uh, a chief security officer to assess your company's exposure to them <laughs> and then to figure out, you know, how to mitigate it. And of course, once we announce it to the industry that there's a, there's a vulnerability the bad guys know it too. So it becomes yeah. a foot race, yeah. right? Our ability to get the mitigation in place before an adversary figures out how to exploit it. And uh, the one thing I've definitely come to learn is our adversaries are, uh, are, are bad, not dumb. Uh, mm -hmm. They're incredibly capable, uh, incredibly persistent and very well resourced. So software vulnerabilities are a huge deal. Um, the uh, the other issue is uh, the the rise in uh, you know for lack of a better word just dis dis distracted IT habits right that that creates the vulnerability for phishing emails right. uh, and now you know now I forget what the word is uh, phishing text messages uh, to come through and 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 find somebody not paying close enough attention to click on a link that introduces malware. Yeah. onto uh onto a company's systems so those are uh th those are significant uh significant significant challenges we've also seen some very creative things around the uh use of uh um you know infecting ubiquitous systems that then can go and infect all the customers of that system and the the, the poster child of this was the uh, solar winds uh, vulnerabilities right. yeah. that uh, were uncovered in, in late 2019. And, mm -hmm. uh, and if you think about that, that really forced us to rethink our calculus around coordinated attack. Because we always used to think about it as an adversary having to pick off any individual asset um, and then be able to do that with multiple assets to be able to, uh, uh, you know, impact broad scale, uh, broad scale havoc. Uh, but that's called a one one to one problem in the cyber world. Mm -hmm. And when you have something like a solar winds, and we saw this with a series of different uh, different products, now all you have to do is corrupt that one product, and then it can go and corrupt everything else. So you now have a one to many uh, yeah. attack vector. Yeah. So th those are very scary uh, for us to be able to protect against, uh, defend and and protect against. And, and then the last thing I'll just talk about are the, the you mean the ransomware gangs, um, very clever 
very capable. We had a major event uh, in the U.S. several years ago with the Colonial Pipeline that was well covered. But we're also seeing them go after key suppliers to the sector, uh, engineering and construction firms that, that hold a lot of data uh, about the grid uh, are, are, are vulnerable. Uh, and we haven't talked physical security yet. And we obviously we saw a step change in the physical security environment, you know, particularly in the U.S. last year. And we're kind of anticipating this to be kind of a bumpy year with the election uh, coming up that we could see domestic extremists uh, uh, using that as a way to distract and, uh, and, and wreak havoc in the economy. So it's a scary world out there, Francis. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, uh, we've been rethinking about coordinated attacks. How are we doing in terms of coordinated response and, and overall coordination and collaboration? Like you and I participate in a number of forums, um, you know, the, the uh, ESCC and and uh, and the ISAC, of course, is, is, is under NERC yep. as well. Uh, how would you say we're doing in terms of our, our coordinated response? So, so thankfully, we have not had a major attack where we've had to actually respond in real time yeah. uh, to any of these events. Uh, but we do drill, uh, as you're aware, and, yep. and you, you you do within Canada. Uh, we, we 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 do the the, the North American uh, GridX utilities are constantly dr drilling their uh, their response plans. Look, I think on paper we've got um, lots to be proud of. And, and I think the ESCC, which you mentioned, um, which is our coordinating council for the electricity sector uh, across North America, yep. um, right? We, we get to practice a lot, right? Because of storms and storm response. Mm -hmm. We have a sector that is well-trained and well-motivated to help each other out, uh, which, is, which is terrific. Um, so, and, and a lot of those uh, uh, storm responses require coordination with the federal governments um, in the U.S. and Canada. And that, those relationships work very, very well under those conditions. Mm -hmm. So, my, my, my sense is, is that we're in pretty good shape. Are we as good as we need to be? Probably not. Mm. Uh, I think this is a treadmill that we always need to be uh, cognizant of that uh, the, the adversary is always going to be a step ahead of us. Yeah. So we can never let our guard down. But I think there's a lot to be optimistic around. Um, at the same time, you know, we frequently run into challenges in these drills that we don't have particularly great answers to. Uh, yeah. So, for example, um, you know, the uh, emergency communications when, when everything is down. And this has right? come up yeah. a couple of times, right? In a couple of, yes. couple of uh, exercises. Yeah. Yeah, and it's come up in some way, shape, or form since we started doing these, uh, these these big simulations. And I think we're getting clearer as to what the issues are. Right. Um, you know, and some people will describe it as the red phone problem, right? You know, how yeah. how how do you, how do I pick up the phone and know I can get a hold of somebody? Now, most companies have uh, utilities have such redundant infrastructure in their uh, in their own operations that I think we're learning that we need to be less concerned about kind of operating the grid without uh, uh, without having robust, you know, the traditional robust communications that we're used to. Um, the intra-utility stuff is probably okay, at least for the major systems around the, uh, around the country, um, which would be what, what's important to get up first, right? Because they can then allow the other infrastructures to come into place. Um, the real challenge we're thinking about now is the uh, between utilities. Um, 
between the utilities and the government, right, in a, in, in a dark sky situation, how are those communications going to take place? Right. And, uh, and I think there's still some wood for us to chop in that area. Okay. Still some wood to chop. So what are the, what are the, when, it, when looking at how we uh, approach uh, coordinated uh, response and collaboration across the sector of North America, uh, you talked about, a, you know, a, a couple of the, a couple of the uh, things that have come up in some of the uh, great X exercises, but are, are there any major gaps um, that, that, that you would identify uh, from a collaboration coordination standpoint? No, I think we still have some tools that we haven't um, completely thought through all the issues associated with activating them. Okay. And, and the one that comes up frequently in these grid uh, grid exercises is the uh, what we call the grid security emergency order. Uh, yep. That is an authority that the DOE has. Uh, we 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 have drilled that uh, several times uh, in these exercises, but it's one where I think we still all have some questions as to you know when does it get invoked, and 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 what does it really allow us to uh, to, to to do. And I think the other gap that we have that, again, I think we're continuing to get better at, right? So our exercises now, right, we're including the Canadian mm -hmm. uh, uh, executive authorities more directly in right. them. Yeah. Given the given the the opening salvo here that uh, electricity doesn't speak uh, doesn't speak Canadian or uh, or American, uh, you know, we need to be able to deal with restoration of international systems mm -hmm. right where you know the local local priorities provincial state priorities and federal priorities across the border might be different mm. right and the poster child for this is there's a problem in the northwest do we restore vancouver or seattle first right, right. and how do we work and there's an electrical answer to that but there are political realities associated yeah. with that, yeah. and and I think that's still an area that we have to uh, have to continue to work on how we would make those joint decisions, um, you know, between our between our two governments. But but I think for the most part, you know, we continue to uh, really stress the system during these scenarios, and I think we're uncovering, you know, issues, and you know, our we've got a pretty good track record now of you know, articulating the problems and then amassing efforts to go address yeah. them. Yeah. And, uh, and I feel really good about that. I feel really good about the fact we haven't had to test any of them in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope that that continues, but we know that one of these days we will. Yeah. And, uh, and that will probably show some gaps in our understanding, but I think we're doing all the right preparatory work mm -hmm. to get ready for these. Yeah. I mean, you raised a really, really interesting question there about, about restoration and restoration priorities. And as you say, there 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 is a an, an electrical response. Um, you know, black start. There's there is a, a clear identification in terms of how you proceed. But yeah, uh, political considerations uh, certainly can come into play. Fascinating that that one I thought I find particularly fascinating. Yeah, I do too. Um, and it's a little above my pay grade to know how to solve that one. Um, but uh, but it's a situation we could face very easily. Um, you know, and I think the uh, I think the government uh, Department of Energy here in the U.S. anyway ha has come to appreciate that their natural desire to direct may not always be grounded in the physical realities of the system, 
right? And so what we've worked with them on is to be clear about what the restoration priorities are, you know, particularly as it relates to defense critical assets, mm -hmm. because in a situation like this, this probably connotes, you know, some form of war <laughs> yeah. um, having been having been launched. So so paying attention to where the defense critical infrastructure is in both of our countries is really very important and making sure that we get a restoration path to those assets very, very quickly um, will, will, will be top priority. And I don't think there'll be a lot of argument around that. I think it's when we start moving towards the re-energization of uh, civilian facilities and so forth, where politics might become a little more pronounced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Jim, you mentioned earlier that you, know, you were both uh, EV drivers. Um, just interested, what are you driving these days and what's your experience been? So I drive a uh, Mustang Mach-E and, mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it's been great for... 95% of my experience with it. One is a terrific car, right? They're, uh, the, the electric vehicles are fun to drive. They're, uh, the, because of the weight of the battery, they have a low center of gravity. Uh, they're very stiff. So everything kind of feels like a good German sedan. Uh, right. if you like that, if you like that kind of thing, yeah. the, uh, uh, the, the torque, uh, and responsiveness of the vehicle is uh, is exceptional. So from a driving experience, it's great. I have had a couple uh, issues on long trips, and I drive it. I drive by fairly long distances. I've, I've probably taken ten to twelve, you know, multi day trips uh, in it since I've had it over the last two years. Right. And uh, I, I've only one time run into a uh, uh, kind of a panic situation around uh, public charging, <laughs> but it was a bit of a doozy. Um, and, and I think it reflects that we need to really work on expanding the amount of, uh, uh of high speed charging in the, uh, in, 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 across the continent. Um, but for the most part, I found it to be a, uh, a terrific experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, uh, I've done, I've run the economics on it and I feel like I'm ahead, uh, between, uh, between this versus a, uh, comparable, uh, gasoline vehicle. Yeah. And, uh, certainly the driving experience is, uh, uh, is, is much more pleasurable. Right. Well, and you know, your, your, uh, your experience, um, with, uh, with the, the, the occasional challenge that you've had, that's exactly what, uh, a previous guest of, uh, the podcast said the, the president of uh, Volkswagen Canada. He he said, you know, once once you get an electric vehicle, range anxiety is no longer a problem. It's charger anxiety, right? Right. It's and, the ability and, to and, access. Right, and and the issue that I've run into is, uh, uh, you know, the the public charging infrastructure, at least in the U.S. Right, they tend to be one every fifty to seventy five miles. Uh, so if you, if you come up to a set and for some reason they're not operating and that, that happened to me once, you know, you got to be able to get to the next one, the next, which, which yeah. may be, you know, 50 miles away. Um, unlike a gas station that might just be across the street. So it takes a little bit more planning on that, uh, on that dimension. The other thing I've come to appreciate is, uh, you know, there are things with an internal combustion engine. We all just know, right? So we know that when the check engine light comes on, that means that there's an oxygen sensor somewhere that yep. probably didn't get reset at your last service or needs to be replaced, but you don't panic. Some of the error messages I get on my electric vehicle are a little bit more concerning, like uh, your battery is draining rapidly. <laughs> <And> <laughs> come back and said, 
I really don't know what that means. Now, it turns out it wasn't a big deal, but um, yeah. but I think there's some some issues around developing intuition around the vehicles. Um, that's different. For example, I also know, you also know on your when you're uh, in your gasoline vehicle when it says that you're empty, everybody knows you can probably drive another 20, 30 miles if uh, you need to. I, I don't really know what the electric equivalent of fumes is, but um, <laughs> you don't want so, to find out. So there's so there, there, there's some tribal knowledge on those dimensions we have to get uh, internalized. But you know, I, I find I find electric vehicles to be highly misunderstood uh, by those who don't have them. Uh, you know, they uh, you know people think that there's a, some sacrifice involved in having an EV, and the fact of the matter is is that they're just better cars. Yeah. than uh, on so many different dimensions. And we do have to get the charging infrastructure right. Right. No question. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Jim, uh, listen, the, the last question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast is for a book recommendation. And um, way, way back uh, when when we first uh, recorded a podcast, you and I, um, you had a really great recommendation. It was Omar Bradley's memoir, uh, A Soldier's Story. Um, but here you get a chance to add a second book to our Flux Capacitor book club. So, Jim, well, what, you know, what book would that be? Well, Francis, you warned me that you were going to ask me for my book recommendation. And I wrote down Omar Bradley's memoir, A Soldier's Story. <laughs> so I forgot that I had already told you that. But uh, so that continues to be one of my uh, one of my touchstone books. I think uh -huh. it's an extraordinary account of uh uh, World War II, you know, obviously a very extraordinary event through the lens of a very extraordinary man. Yeah. So I'm, I, I would like to stick with that one if I could. Um, All right. But uh, it, it, it's really a fascinating read. And, we will, uh, we will move I it back up. Recommend it from the, from the, uh, from number three. We'll move it back up to the top of our, uh, uh, top of our recommendation on the book club list. That's great. And, and, and I'm sorry, I had no idea that that's what I'd recommended in uh, in podcast number three. But now you know how strongly I do feel about that book. <laughs> that is that is a very very strong endorsement, Jim. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to join the podcast for a second time. Well, no, I appreciate the invitation, Francis, and I look forward to doing it for a third time. Uh, and I hope in that third time we can talk about all of the amazing things that we've accomplished together over the next uh, next three to four years. I, I tell people, what's your aspiration? And I tell them my aspiration is, is threefold. Number one is I want to I want to prepare a long-term reliability assessment that has no color on it at all. <laughs> That's number one. Number two is I want to do an assessment of a major cold weather event where everything worked the way it was supposed to and mm -hmm. there were no outages. And the third is I want to never have to write another story about uh, coordinated inverter failures in West Texas. If, uh, if, if by the time we have our next broadcast uh, podcast together in uh, 2027, 2028, I want to look back and say, we haven't had to do any of that. And then we'll know we've, then we know we've been successful and can retire. That'll be awesome. That'll be awesome. Let's, let's see if we can do that on the next podcast. Let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you very much, Jim. Appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely, Francis. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future episodes, and please take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen, 
and let me know what you think of the flux capacitor. You can find me on Twitter or X as at Brad Bradley. The website for this pod is thefluxcapacitor.ca, and it includes links for this episode on the show page, this being episode 90. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.